Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 263, and I had a conversation with Dr. Joshua Smith. He's an evangelical pastor and is the author of Robotic Persons, Our Future with Social Robots. This was a fascinating conversation for me and hopefully for you too. We, Firstly, I'd never spoken with an evangelical pastor before. I had my own concept of what that means. And so it was really exciting for me to have a conversation with somebody that, you know, explained to me what their vision of their belief system is and how they see the world at large, how he chooses to address his congregation, what he feels about the word of God and the Bible. And it was really cool. Uh, He was super open and extraordinarily honest with his feelings about things. So I really appreciated that. The AI stuff, extra, extra exciting for me. It's right up my alley. We talked about robotic personhood. We talked about uh, what it means to be in a world operating now with sex robots, companion robots, robots that are capable of war, uh, robots that are perhaps taking over jobs or going to be a blessing in that way or a curse in that way. Such a fascinating guy and great conversation. I'm really, really stoked that I got a chance to talk to him. Uh, I recommend reading his book. It's fascinating. He draws on so many different philosophies and Uh, thinkers. It was just cool. Super duper cool. So I'm excited for you to hear this one. In other news, usual stuff, social media, Hey Human Podcast can be found on Facebook and Instagram. Susan Ruthism is my personal social media. That's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, Susan at Hey Human Podcast, if you want to drop me an email, I always look forward to those, so please do that. If you go to heyhumanpodcast.com, you will find a links page. Every episode, including this one, has a bevy of links for you to click on and learn more about my guest and uh, if they have books or articles or thoughts or whatever, you know, I try and get the a pile of all that stuff together in one place for you, make it easy for you to discover more about the conversation and about the guests that I have on every week. So lots and lots and lots of links on that links page. Also on heyhumanpodcast.com is the store where you can get Hey Human merch, t-shirts, hats, uh, all sorts of things, knickknacks. So definitely check that out. It's a great way to support the podcast. Another great way to support the podcast is to rate and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It's super duper helpful. I cannot stress this enough. If you have been listening to the show, if you're new to the show or a longtime listener, please take a few minutes and rate and review on iTunes. It's, it's really helpful. And pushes it up through the algorithms, the bizarro world of <laughs> of robot brain. Uh, so definitely do that if you get the chance. SusanRuth.com if you want to learn more about me personally, and you can also sign up for the mailing list there. I send out mailers every, I don't know, four or five, six months. And if you are into music, uh, I have four records out in the world, and you can find me under Susan Ruth on iTunes or Spotify, uh, probably probably lots of places, I'm sure, on Amazon, uh, which basically has everything at, the, at this point. So anyway, thank you for listening, everyone. Stay safe, be kind, be well, take care of each other.
uh, we're journeying into a new unknown of, of, you know, masks, no masks, what's going on in the world. Some places it's still totally shut down. Just be gentle with each other. You know, we're all doing the best we can and people's nerves are frazzled and fried and there's excitement in the air and there's confusion and there's stress and, you know, we're all doing the best we can. So hang in there for each other and and we'll get through it, you know, because that's what humans do. We are resilient, if nothing else. All right. Thank you. Let's do this. Here we go. Joshua Smith, welcome to Hey Human. Hey, thanks for having hey. me. <laughs> it's my pleasure. You wrote Robotic Persons, Our Future with Social Robots. And there's so much stuff that I want to talk about with you about the book. But before we dig into that, what I like to do with all my guests is find out about you as a human, like wh where you came from, what inspired you. You're an evangelical pastor. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a particular path. So let's go back to the yeah. beginning. What's childhood? Where'd you grow up? That kind of thing. Yeah, I grew up in a small town in Mississippi. So very central part of the state. And uh, I was raised by my grandmother and uh, she was a believer. Uh, my grandfather wasn't. Um, very strange situation. My, my dad had um, just gotten out of prison for uh, doing some stuff. And my mom had my brother and she left and they kind of went on their own journey. And so I was just there with my grandmother and um, life was good for, in that regard. Um, and then, you know, I, we didn't really go to church or anything. Um, but I do remember my grandmother praying for me every night and um, they didn't really make sense of that until later. But anyway, she passed away and when I was 15 and um, just had a lot of struggles with that. And because I knew she was a believer and um, not, I didn't know what that meant, but I knew she believed in God and uh, that really upset me. And so I went down a very different path and, um, you know, typical teenage stuff. Um, Wait, which part upset you? It upset you that she believed in God or upset you because she died, which clearly would upset yeah, you. Yeah. It, it upset me because, you know, I, I didn't understand why, you know, God would allow that to happen. So, you know, yeah. if you know there was an all loving God who wanted to take care of his people, then, you know, why, why did my grandmother die? And, you know, my grandfather went on to live and get married again. Like it's, it didn't seem right to me. So that's what upset me. Um, did you have a lot of it? Is dealing with the fact I mean firstly a father in prison a mom who leaves you with another with another brother I mean that's there's a lot of abandonment wrapped up in that and then the, from the yeah. way you're talking I'm assuming your relationship with your grandfather wasn't as close as with your grandmother so then your grandmother dies which is more um, stuff I mean that's a lot for a kid to carry yeah um and that's not all of it um and so my mom and my stepmother, so my dad remarried when I was young. Um, they're both bipolar, clinically bipolar. Um, and, and so I think that didn't help either with some of the issues that I had. Um, like I thought I was just insane because, you know, the way that some of bipolar, you know, manic depressive can manifest is 
people just make up stories and, um, and it gets worse. Like, it's just, I mean, there's different forms of it, but the ones that I experienced was, you know, pathological lying and, um, just complete disconnect from reality. And so, but in their minds, it's real like this. And so I dealt with that a lot of really bad situations. Um, and I just kind of gave up on life just really in general and, um, uh, just experimented with a lot of different drugs and, um, a lot of alcohol, uh, a lot of escapism and, um, like to the extreme, right. Not like just dabbling in it, but like, I just wanted to, to be numb and that's why I did it. Um, and so, you know, I did that for a while and I wanted to go to art school. I couldn't afford it. We were poor. Um, and the military about that time, they came around to our high schools and they started, you know, that you had to do the ASVAB test. I don't know if y'all had to do that in high school, but we had to take it. And um, once you take it, they start hounding you basically to, to enlist, especially if you're in the demographics that I was in. Um, and, you know, they start advertising money and all this stuff. And so I wanted to go to school and nobody in my family had went to college. And I think mom nor dad like graduated from Mm -hmm. high school. And so this was my one shot to really get away from small town. And so, yeah, I took it. Yeah. I took it. um, Yeah. And that kind of changed the trajectory of my life because that gave me money for the first time. It gave Mm -hmm. me income, but it also, um, gave me a chance to get away from friends and my girlfriend at the time and to really think about life and and think about death, um, in a way I hadn't really before. And, uh, did you have an absence of belief at that time? Like no belief in God? Oh yeah. I, I, so, you know, I, I came to school one day really high, um, like pupils really dilated. And one of my um, teachers pulled me aside and said, you know, obviously you're intoxicated. Um, and, you know, would you come to church with me basically? And he says, I know you're depressed. I know you're hurting and all this stuff. And um, so I said, yeah. And, um, you know, he just allowed me to ask a lot of questions. I was very angry, you know, snarky, those type of things. I've always been a cynic, skeptic, yeah, just sarcastic. Uh, and he, he put up with a lot of that. And, um, I think that kind of opened the door for me that, you know, maybe there's more to it than just, uh, another form of escapism or that this is just something people made up. And, you know, these people really believe this. And, you know, this teacher was very intellectual. Uh, I respected him. And so it kind of opened me up to it a little bit. And, um, and then when I went to, uh, when I joined the military, it it went a little bit deeper because I started thinking about uh, this was during the Iraq War, and you know they're telling us you're going to die basically, and all this stuff. And so you know I just thought about it a lot more, and um, I started going to church on on and off post for a while. And Hold on, really... they told you you're going to die. What, what was that? Yeah. Uh, well, like, I mean, you're here and you're not going to make it because this is hell on <laughs> earth kind of thing or what? Well, no, it's like, so there's a very 
strategic process that you go through um, when you enter basic, um, like the first thing you kind of do, like the indoctrination part of it, not mm-hmm. indoctrination like a cult, but basically that's what it's, that's what <laughs> yeah. it's thought of. You know, yeah. it's, you know, you're, you're training, you're taking somebody who's a civilian right, and showing them that you're now part of a machine basically. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, there is that, but it's also a desensitizing to what the war machine is. And um, so you kind of have to have that mentality to walk into that. Um, And I think in some ways that's kind of what I thought would actually happen anyway. Um, I don't know. It's just kind of like you kind of buy into this. That's what a hero does. And so Mm -hmm. I don't know, I kind of have a superhero complex and, and so I kind of wanted that in a sense, but I know that sounds really morbid, but that's kind of what we all wanted. So if you like, if you take somebody and you train them to play baseball or whatever, you know, piano, they want to to do that thing, right? That's that's what they're trained for. And so the the way that it works in the military, especially with combat um, fields, is you you train for those jobs and then you want to do that job, um, and it's a complex psychological process that you go through. Um, and I talk about that in the book a little bit, but it's, it's a very real process where you, you, you learn how to disassociate the, the act of killing and the nature of what war is and the cost of it all, the ethics behind it. And you really kind of boil it down to, this is my job and this is what I'm doing to mm. provide or whatever, or, um, to provide safety for the citizens of the U S and all, you know, the greater good and all that stuff. Uh, so yeah, um, I thought about death a pretty good bit and, um, that kind of fueled some of that research, you know, is, you know, is there life after death? Is there a God is, is it real? Is it just something like Freud and others said that we are, um, just kind of numbing and escaping through this um, thing we call religion. And uh, the research that I did, it, it pointed to a different direction. And, um, and yeah, in some ways it is a crutch. It is, but I believe that it's real and, you know, you can't prove otherwise that it's not. And, you know, I have warrant for the beliefs that I have, I have justification for them. Uh, and I found those along the way and in different points. And it took a long time to to get to kind of to where my faith is now. Um, but all along the way, there are people to help and guide and kind of assist. And, and some people wanted to hurt me and some people wanted to take advantage. But um, thankfully, I kind of made it through that. Uh, and so, yeah, there's always been people who oppose my current worldview and uh, and that challenge has always kind of pressed me deeper into what I believe. And so uh, I think that's, that's been a, a beneficial thing to me that, you know, I was surrounded by guys who were atheists, who did good things. They were moral, but also was surrounded by people who said they were Christian, who cheated on their wife and bought prostitutes and all kinds of crazy stuff who, you know, were deacons of churches and, and different things. And so I saw a lot of, dichotomies. And uh, I think the military kind of helped broaden some of my perspectives 
um, especially dealing with different cultures. And um, so there's a lot of negative, but there's also some positives to that experience. Um, and I think it definitely kind of helped my journey of faith in a lot of ways. And uh, yeah. So, and then after that, yeah, do you have a question? Sorry. No, no, oh, I, I did, but I don't know if as an evangelical person, which I'd like you to explain to listeners what that means. Cause I think people have ideas as to what that means, especially lately <laughs> in the, <laughs> yeah. in the political, in the political realm, it's taken mm -hmm. on this whole other idea. So an ideology. So definitely yeah. I want to talk about what that means to you. And also as a person who did experience other cultures and other ways of life and understanding that not everyone believes the same thing, Mm -hmm. Where does that fit in with your worldview about, say, heaven and hell or morality and and things like that? Yeah. Um, Big question. Well, no, that is, uh, you know, our influences and our preferences, they're kind of influenced by our culture and in our environment. And so, um, the, the easiest answer to that, the reason why I got into this branch of Christianity or this subculture of it. It's because that's what I was invited to initially, you know, and the more I looked into it, the more I, I felt like I aligned with that. And so you can take that for what it's worth. But um, the evangelical aspect of it is for me and what I think it is in its original context is that we we are solely grounded in what we find and read in scripture. So that's kind of our source of authority. Um, and I know there's different opinions about you know, scripture. And um, so it's a closed system for us. So we don't believe that there's any new books coming out. And um, there's this long history of what's called textual criticism, where we collected thousands upon thousands of manuscripts from Latin, uh, Hebrew, Syriac, um, different, I mean, just thousands of manuscripts. And we take them and we compile them. And we see that there's this, you know, textual tree that is all, you know, the books of Isaiah or, you know, the, the books of the Old Testament, New Testament. And we see those as a collective whole. They're different, right? There's 66 of them. And um, we see this witness throughout history where um, coming out of different portions of history that people believe these stories, they wrote them down, right? They originated in oral culture, mm -hmm. but they wrote them down eventually probably after the babylonian captivity um and so there's these collections there's these textual um traditions and they come out and then you know we we believe that jesus comes in the first century there's this man named jesus and uh he's calling himself the messiah he's uh saying that all the old testament prophecies that the jewish tradition has talked about are pointing to him and so there's a lot of controversy over that in the first century, so much so that they they kill him and they think he's a blasphemer and all this stuff. But from that, there are, you know, the 12 disciples and then this guy named Paul. And he writes 13 books of the New Testament. And the disciples write some books and, and others and they compile them. And then the early church fathers study these books and they further uh, analyze them and they compile them into what we have now as the Bible. Um, and so that's kind of our source of tradition and foundation is at least what we believe. And um, 
And so we don't have a pope. We don't have um, a, a major figure in our hierarchy. We believe that the local church is its own source of authority in a sense that's grounded upon the Bible. Now, as you mentioned, that can break down when the system does not work properly, right? So it, it entails that one, people are going to actually study the Bible for themselves and um, that they're going to be able to read it. And so that was the, the Catholic church's um, concern when, during the Protestant Reformation is that um, the, the Catholic church was concerned that people wouldn't be able to read the Bible for themselves. And I think that has been true for a good many years. And, um, and so the, mo the modern day evangelical movement, um, and there's books out there, Jesus and John Wayne, uh, if you haven't read that, it's a really good, I mean, it's painful to read as an evangelical, but it's very true about how it, we, we got so tied into politics and so tied into certain political figures and never really kind of diving into going back to the, the source of our faith and foundation, which is the revealed word of God in scripture and kind of assuming that these people, because they're charismatic, because they're, um, they're likable and they, they talk with eloquent speech and all these things, they became a, they became a new source for a lot of Christians. And that has been horribly, that's horribly affected the local church. Uh, and especially with the whole Trump movement, um, which was just very disturbing in a lot of different ways. Um, and I have people in my church that, you know, voted for him because the main thing that I've heard was because they didn't want Hillary to win. And I was like, you know, it's kind of the lesser of two evils thing. And then nobody wins in those scenarios. And, um, and I don't know. It depends, what on, it depends on what you consider evil too. Right. That's you right. Know? That's right. Yeah. It's, everything is um, on a scale of what, what your personhood uh, and what your soul uh finds uh it bad yeah. <laughs> i'm trying to say this in this most the most uh without offending anyone but i mean that's basically what it is you pick your you pick your team based on whatever it means for you how it reflects back upon yourself you know yeah and so yeah that's a good point because a lot of people you know so if if there is a god you know, which I do believe that is, there's a God, like if there's a God, you know, if you believe in the laws of physics, if you believe in the law of causality and all these things that, you know, things don't just come into being by accident, right? If there's a cause, there's an effect, those type of things. Um, so there has to be something behind this universe, right? But it's also slowly unraveling. And so we're not just going to lead to a new creation of another world. Just once this one burns up, it's, it's leading towards destruction and, you know, demise. And we, Are you I talking about the expansion, expansion of the universe? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And some it's people it. believe that it will expand back into itself and just start the whole process, which is, <laughs> is which is, which is a fun idea to, to, if you think of humans and the universe at large and everything that is within it, uh, the all of the all the great of everything that if it is an a sentient thing knowing itself it makes sense that it would expand as far as it can and then break down back into itself and then begin again 
I mean, it's a great way. I mean, it's a metaphor through the seasons, through mm-hmm. the Christ rebirth story, through many of the ancient texts of rebirth stories. It's not like Jesus was the first one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. It is. Um, so, I don't know if I answered your question fully, but um, basically, well, if you want to boil it down, evangelicalism should be, it should be or ought to be that the the Bible is the source and foundation of our morality and also the purpose of our life. To what end do we you know, live? And, you know, I mean, clearly it's two major things for Jesus were that we love our neighbor and that we love God. And there's a ton of ethical and uh, just crazy stories in there that are really difficult to read and hard to understand um, and that we don't take lightly either. And so, yeah, well, that's why metaphor and story. And I I think a lot of even, I feel like Jesus had a good sense of humor and, and nobody really gets what I'm saying when I say that, but there are moments in the Bible where he sort of says things and you can almost hear the twinkle in his mm-hmm. eyes when he's saying yeah. it. Cause he's like, y'all figure this stuff out. I can't do everything for you, <laughs> you know, which I, which I love. And in, in part, I think your answer helps answer the other question I had, which is the worldview of other people's belief systems. Because as Gandhi famously said, I love your Christ. It's your Christians that I have issue mm-hmm. with because yeah. a, a Christ figure, uh, a Jesus figure, it's, it, it's not, he didn't turn his back on anyone. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I think that's important. Um, and I, I even Camus, who was an atheist, I believe, um, or at least agnostic, you know, he, maybe he wouldn't claim to be an atheist, but um, definitely not a believer. <laughs> and, you know, he said to Christians, you know, we, we can relate to one another in our efforts to do good to humanity um, and I'm paraphrasing one of his speeches there, but, you know, basically he said, if, if Christians acted like Jesus, if they were truly reflective of Jesus, there would not be any suffering children um, and afflicted. Of women. any faith. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's very important to me, especially as I try to relate to other people. And um, I firmly believe that we, all humans, we are, intertwined in a way, um, not in like a Buddhist way or anything like that, but we're intertwined in a way that I can't treat you um, harmfully without harming myself. And, um, and so, and I think that is, is a biblical principle as well, is that we. It is Buddhist too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's both. It is. <laughs> yeah. It is. But I mean, let's be honest, the, the, all the major and some minor religions of the world, they all have a golden rule, all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a reason yeah. for that, you know, and my, who knows, who knows if God exists or not, that's where faith comes in. But the, the truth of the matter is, truth of the capital T is, if you say, prove that God exists, I say, prove that God doesn't exist, just as you can say, prove God doesn't exist. And then somebody can say, prove that God exists. I mean, it's, it's a, a moot argument. And that's why mm-hmm. faith is so important. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think we can we can look for um, the most logical, you know, kind of conclusion. I think that's kind of where I go. I can't prove, you know, empirically that this is true or you know, I can give 
rationales for what I believe. And, um, I think we should, you know, I think that's, I don't ask anybody to just believe anything blindly. And that's not what I teach my, my daughters or my, you know, my son or even my, you know, our church members that I want you to, to look for yourself. And if I tell you something untrue, then, you know, you need to do something different and you need to hold each other accountable, myself included that, um, and, and that's just kind of something I hold to uh, because, you know, everybody is corruptible to a certain extent and um, myself included. And so, you know, what happens when good intentions go bad and um, you know, we see what happens and that's the way of the world in so many ways. And so um, I think that keeps us humble. It keeps us um, open to our mistakes and, and, and done in love. It can be, you know, edifying, um, not in a way that harms people. You know, I, I tell people all the time, I'm not your judge. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to help. And definitely, you know, if you ask me what I believe on something, I'll tell you, and it may hurt your feelings, but that's not what I want to do. And certainly not, I don't, I don't like conflict, but um, I also don't believe in you know, being dishonest with you or, or anyone. So you know, you have to hold it in balance and it's really hard sometimes. I feel like your childhood prepared you well for something like that. Sure. Yeah, it definitely did in a lot of ways. Um, because otherwise you wouldn't be able to have conversations with people that are going through their own darkness. You know, we have mm-hmm. to go through our own fires uh, in order to understand other people's journey through the fire. Yeah. I, th- I think. Yeah, I agree. You know, It's definitely helped. Um I mean, I definitely wouldn't want to go, like, if I had to choose, I wouldn't choose to, I would, I would want to be my fam, my family to be complete and holistic. Sure. Like the one my wife went through and experienced, but <laughs> that's just not what happened. And so I think it does make me less judgmental of people. Um, not, not saying I'm humble or anything, but that I can understand why somebody might want to, um, be addicted to something or why they might want to escape or, you know, why they might want to kill themselves or other things. I, I understand those feelings. Um, and I've had many opportunities to kind of share with people and help them through that process. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not thankful for those experiences necessarily because they really hurt. Um, and there's still a lot of scar tissue from it, but I am thankful that I've, I've been able to help some people uh, in a limited mm-hmm. sense through those experiences. Um, so, sure. yeah. Yeah. And it's a big leap from being a person of faith to then becoming a pastor. How did you make that call? Um, well, it's, you know, so people in the church that I kind of went in and out of always kind of put me in leadership positions, even though I was, you know, desperately shy (laughs) and I'm 100% an introvert. Um, So it makes it odd that what I do for a living is public speaking. Uh, So I'm always uncomfortable, but that's okay. Um, I'm kind of comfortable with that now, but yeah, the transition was, um, I was in Iraq 2010, 2011, and um, just thinking through how I was going to transition out. And I've, I wanted to go to seminary um, and study religion or stu- study theology, 
And I thought I might be a professor. Like I thought that's what I was going to end up doing. And, um, and so, you know, I kind of made up my mind once I got out, which was the next step. Once I got back home that I was going to go to school and, and through doing that, I took the first step to where I am today, uh, which is becoming a part of the ministry. And, and so, um, actually had no kind of inkling to do that ever, uh, or what I'm doing now. And so I got back and we, my wife and I started going to a church and immediately, um, I was asked to start a college ministry and, and teach college students, uh, so I did that and that led to another position and then another. Um, and then we uh, moved up north uh, to British Columbia for a while and, and helped the church up there and then uh, moved back and helped another church in Mississippi. And then I kind of felt like, you know, maybe God was saying that it's time for me to start doing this as a full time um, position. And so that's kind of the short story. And, and all along the way, we, we kind of value discernment and input from others. And so it's, it's not something you just say, Hey, I want to do this. And then the next week, like you, you kind of have to be invited to it. Or I think that's how it should be. You shouldn't just be like, Hey, I want to do this. And because so-and-so did it. And so each point in my transition is kind of like, why do you want to do this? And, um, you know, it's a very, scrutinizing process or at least the one I went through. And so I think that's helped me a lot to discern that this is not just something like I don't just want to teach, but um, I'm actually pretty decent at it and I like doing it and and people like being on the opposite end of it. Um, not that I'm the best teacher or whatever, but um, yeah, I, I do enjoy it a lot now. And um, But you get to be teacher, philosopher. Uh, yeah you know, pastor, obviously therapist, I'm sure there's mm -hmm. a lot of things that are wrapped up into that. Yeah. It's kind of like, if I could describe it simply, it's like being a small business owner, um, but also an undertrained counselor <laughs> and, um, you know, an educator of a small school. And, and so like dealing with all those things and grant writer and all that kind of stuff, uh, because you're, you're dealing with a lot of different issues um, and people trust you and they kind of invite you to the most intimate parts of their life. Um, but they also expect you to be informed on all types of ethics and philosophy and theology. And so I get like just random questions off the cuff all the time. And so I do read very widely and I think that pays great dividends in how I can respond to people and, um, and also just appreciating where people come from in different worldviews because not everybody had the same experience that I had or not everybody's had the same amount of education. And, you know, I think total, total hours of, you know, graduate, undergraduate and postdoc work is like almost 250 hours of coursework that I had to go through to get to where I am. Um, so you're a so, doctor of theology, doctor of yes, theology. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's a lot, it's a lot, it's way more than what you would kind of go through just to be like the uh, PhD in math or 
PhD mm-hmm. in biology or whatever. It's it's double at every point. Um, I think unnecessarily so, but it that's what it is. So although um, a great theologian knows history, knows science, knows philosophy, knows the great thinkers of the world, knows the texts, knows the texts that aren't talked about, knows the Gnostics. There's a lot of content. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so, yeah, we read a lot. Or, and I could tell when I read your book that you were clearly, that you dug in to uh, different thinkers, which I was excited about because, you know, again, the, the painted picture of an evangelical is these days a very narrow lens, which, uh, which is one of the reasons I was excited to have you on the show, too, because I think that's an unfair viewpoint. I, I know it's not actually true. Of course, there's all types of all types of people. So I, and after reading the book, I was like, Ooh, this is going to be interesting because it's clear that you are a deep thinker. And those are my favorite kinds of people. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine too. So yeah, yeah I, I was excited. There's a lot of really deep people in this tradition. Um, and I, I hate, I hate some of what has happened. Um, and to be honest, you know, it's fair. Like we've earned that reputation that we have now and by all means. So I'm not apologizing for it, but yeah, I mean, but there's also a small segment of the people that I've interacted with. And, you know, there's so many good people here who are not educated, but they're, they are very good people and they would give you the shirt off their back and would, you know, do anything for their neighbor and love them well. Um, and so I'm not ashamed of, of them in our community. I'm ashamed of people who, who misrepresent what we're called to be and um, are that they're so tied to a label or, or a, um, a sect of Christianity that they forget kind of the broader picture of what mm-hmm. we're called to do and be united in Christ. And, <laughs> and we can't do that by, um, some of the stupidity that has happened uh, over the last 10, 12, you know, 20 years. Um, and so, and it just change moves slow. It moves really slow, but um, I, I think people hopefully will kind of open their eyes that this is so much bigger than, than one denomination of faith. And um, yeah, this is our, our brand that we like, but you know, there, there are other people, you know, there are Catholics, who are definitely going to heaven, Presbyterians, you know, there's so many different brands of Christianity that I believe, you know, they, they truly understand too. We, we disagree on certain things, but, you know, kind of the, the foundational theology that we kind of have to go to is, you know, what do you believe about Jesus? And that's why in my book that I use him as a rubric, like if, if I'm going to understand something, uh, and we look at work, war, and, and sexuality, then I want to understand how Jesus thought about it. I don't care uh, necessarily what the early church fathers thought, although it's helpful, but they're not my 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 guiding light through that. And so, you know, can't, he's kind of the main philosopher that I'm, I'm trying to understand and unpack. And all this other stuff on the peripheral is, is fine and it's helpful, but it can also, if we if we hitch our wagon to it, so to speak, we can get led astray by a certain um, theological brand that we just really like, whether that be Reformed theology or 
you know, we want to follow this theologian. And, uh, and, and I think even Paul would say, you know, be careful of that because it can lead you astray. Um, and so, you know, continually look at, at Christ and, and how he treated people and how he loved people who are not like him, who are different, who are considered others. Um, and so that really kind of launched me into uh, robots and just the very strong emotional response people have to whether or not <laughs> robots can can be a part of our community. And um, yeah, it yeah, was interesting. I, 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 again, I, I definitely want to dig into the book. I have one more question about your past. Um, do you have you do you still have contact with, you know, your parents or your your sibling and stuff like that? And then and forgiveness, because I think forgiveness is a big it's big for me. I am fascinated by the topic. I think it's infinitely interesting. And so where were you, where are you on that? Um, well, I, I talked to my mom and my dad, um, on a pretty regular basis now. Um, you know, my grandmother was like my mother and I think it was hard for me when, when my mom wanted to come back into my life, um, in my twenties, it was really hard for me because I kind of like had moved on and, you know, but for her, she felt a lot of shame and, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, and, um, and there's some other things that I can't talk about that she went through and I, I understand in a way, you know, and so I've forgiven her, forgiven my dad and um, I love them both, but I think it's hard for them to be around me because that draws out feelings of the past. And even though you say it's okay, you know, like, let's just move on. It's like that trauma. It's just kind of, they're stuck in a cycle. um, And until they kind of deal with their own demons and, and stuff, they can't, they can't deal with it. You know, they can't, they don't want to be around me sometimes. And, um, uh, yeah, I invite them. And, uh, my mom's been here. She's, she's come to church here. My dad's come a couple of times and, um, but I don't, I don't see them regularly. I wish I would. Um, and I think about that too, because when I do funerals and stuff, um, like you said, one of the things that I often talk about is, is reconciliation. And, um, but, we have to be careful, I think, too, because forgiveness is, it's a two-way, you know, reconciliation is a two-way street, you know, until that person kind of acknowledges, hey, I hurt you, um, can you forgive me? I don't, I don't think there can be any real kind of healing. I think you can forgive the person for sure. Um, and I think there are some hurts, especially dealing with cases of sexual abuse and, and those type of things where, I'm not sure that that person's ever really going to, to get to a place of forgiveness just pragmatically. Um, and we've dealt with some pretty serious ones. And so, um, and I I don't try to make light of that either. Like, Oh, you should just forgive that person. Um, but they're like, the person doesn't even acknowledge they did it and they just lie. And, and so that's kind of propagating the hurt. And I don't think that's where, where it should go. Um, and so I think, yeah, you can forgive the person because you don't want to, to damage your own soul and being and, and kind of let that 
devour you. Um, mm-hmm. But understand that you can't control that other person. And so forgiveness and reconciliation, I think, is the end goal. Um, and, I, and I want that for people. But if the other yeah. party does not reciprocate that or, you know, like my stepmom, she um, she's just completely off the grid, completely gone, you know, and um, and she'll never acknowledge the things that she put me through. She'll never acknowledge the things she put my sister through um, and like deep, deep psychological hurt. Um, and so I don't think we'll ever have reconciliation. I mean, she might one day, but I think in her mind, physically, it's not possible for her because that's, that's not in her reality. Yeah. So I'm, I'm still struggling with some of those things um, to, to be transparent. And uh, I know what I want is to be reconciled to all people and all things. Uh, but the harsh reality of, of life is that it doesn't always work out um, like we want. And, and thankfully that's the beauty of Christ and the gospel and the good news is that he, he does come to reconcile all things to himself. Uh, and so on this side of eternity, it doesn't, it doesn't flesh out like we want, but we, sh- we should pursue that to the best of our ability. Um, but I caution people sometimes that they make that their ultimate goal in life and it's a good goal. But in cases of extreme harm, like, you know, abusive husband, abusive relationships, um, you know, that I think there's another tier of uh, treatment that needs to be had and help. And um, so it's complicated. But for me, Mm -hmm. I definitely want it. um, But I I just don't know if it's fully possible in, in all ways. Yeah. You bring up such a great point about forgiveness. For me, it's that thing. It's like, okay, I forgive the transgression or I forgive the person who hurt me greatly. However, (laughs) there's that parenthetical. That person has never, ever once said, I'm sorry, or Mm. I did this to you. And, And so, yeah, it does leave this place of pain that doesn't ever really go. Not really. You can kind of turn your back on it and be like, Oh yeah, it's somewhere back there, but it's still, it triggers on things, you know, because it's, it will always be there because that other person doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doesn't acknowledge it. Yeah. So we deal with that a lot um, as pastors and um, in our own hearts, but also in others, we, we deal with those, those emotional scars a lot. And um and so it's it's an emotional job. It's a, uh, but I, I think definitely the body keeps the score, you know. And um, and once mm-hmm. you kind of go go through some traumatic events, which which everybody does at some point, um, and, and the way that try is so crazy uh, how it can manifest physically in your body, and um, and so in in a lot of ways we're trying to help people kind of kind of deal with their their trauma and. Um, whether it's perceived or actual. Uh, and yeah. And so even the military kind of helped with some of that. Uh, they didn't physically help, but <laughs> helped me think about it um, with PTSD and, and kind of seeing some of my friends who kind of went through more difficult situations and uh, just the absurdity of that experience. And um, 
but yeah, I've seen some really great transformational things happen in people's lives, um, coming out of addiction, coming out of abuse, um, and, and they live totally different lives now. But then on the other side, I've seen people, um, for no, no reason that I can understand, just completely give up and, um, that they're, you know, they're living their life in, in a way that nobody, yeah, just by drugs and, um, all kind of other things. And so you're like, what happened in, in their life? Um, and something did, I think there has to be something physical that, that manifested or whatever, and they just didn't deal with it or, or don't remember or, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. for sure. So humans, huh? Complicated. Uh, I love that phrase you said on this side of eternity. It's so great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You hear that a lot in the evangelical worlds. <laughs> oh, really? I love mm-hmm. it. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a great way to think about things. Um, all right, let's dig into the book, Robotic uh, Dominion, mm. whether or not they deserve personhood, what it means to use robots in war or as companions for sex, for sexual deviance, uh, you know, all that, quote unquote, I'll put that around because, you know, the one man's deviance is another man's <laughs> good time, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> um, so, let's dig into this. So, you started thinking about robots. That's interesting. For a man of faith and humanity, uh, how did that come to be? Other than, I suppose, the Iraq War in which robots were used, as you mentioned in the book, robots are used in war. Yeah. Um, well, you know, my experience with robots kind of goes back to high school and um, a program. Some of the uh, robots you would see, which, I mean, that was 10, 12 years ago, so I don't, they're not the same now. But uh, some of the automation that we use for um, developing are producing cars and manufacturing plants. Um, so I got, I got some experience with those and thought that's pretty interesting. I like it. You know, I'm an introvert. I like the, um, just isolation of it and the robot's not going to talk to me. It's not going to fuss at me or whatever. If I make a mistake, it's just, it's just there. And I feel like I kind of understand it and, um, you know, doesn't have feelings or whatever. So, that's kind of where I got into it. And, um, after high school, I obviously did not go directly into college or anything, but I ended up at the latter part of my career, um, after six years working with this massive robot that, um, was an anti mortar and rocket defense robot. And, uh, yeah. And so we, we were the maintainers of that system and it was really neat. Uh, I thought, um, and so that, that got me thinking about it and I didn't really think about it much more after that until, um, you know, Westworld came out and, mm-hmm. and West Westworld really kind of, cause I, I've been studying philosophy of mind and really interested in that kind of stuff. And, and so I wanted to know more about that from the perspective of the story uh, found in Westworld and how they were dealing with cognitive science and all this stuff. And, and so that really kind of pushed me more into it and, and dealing with androids and other things. And, uh, and so I just approached one of my professors and said, Hey, I, I want to do a directed study just on AI. And um, I kind of launched from there and that's really what became the, um, the book is is those two studies that I did 
six months of research, and then I launched that into my dissertation. And so, uh, and the dissertation became the book. So that, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it was a good two years. As I was reading it, I wondered, I thought like, this reads sort of like a dissertation. I wonder if that was the it is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I thought so. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and so there was nothing out there like it. And even scholars in the field would say, you know, philosophers in the field say this is really the first kind of evangelical approach to this topic. Um, and it's not the first Christian approach, but in the way that I did it, it's very much uh, unique and uh, <laughs> its own kind of subgenre of robotic studies. And, and so when I started to pitch it to publishers, they were like, what in the world? No, we don't really understand how to sell this book and we don't, we don't know who would buy it. Um, and, but once I started to kind of help people see like, this is what it's really about. And, you know, these things exist. They're not like these, you know, imaginative humanoid robots that um, you think about when you see Westworld, but you know, these are real practical robots that you're going to see in life. Um, and some of them exist, some of them don't, but, um, but when they you, will. Yeah, but they will. And they're closer than you think. Um, Much, yeah. And so not in a, in a Westworld type of way, not, not that, but how they're being used to kind of manipulate and deceive um, and take advantage of. I think that's what really kind of disturbed me. And then how a lot of Christians, they think about technology as just a tool. Like it's just a piece of technology that I use. It's not good or bad. And, you know, this book is kind of a challenge to that, that there's embedded goodness or badness kind of in the technology that you make. And so if you make a sex doll, its purpose, its being is to, you know, be an object, to be an object of sex and, and to, to be an object basically of rape. And so is that something that we want to make? Um, and no, I don't think that's a good thing to make. And, and yes, there are arguments for why people might make it. Um, but I think the biggest kind of undercurrent to that is people want to buy them. So let's make them. And that's, Oh, well, that's the truth yeah. for all things, is it? Right. Not? Yeah. <laughs> but there's a there's a big danger. This is not just, um, and even you could argue with pornography and stuff. There's a danger to it. Um, although in my research, not a lot of people said that there was, uh, especially from a you know psychological standpoint, which is a totally different topic. But it comes up in the yeah. book, um, you know. And I just challenge that that. Um, there is a such thing as good and bad sexuality um, in a sense of, you know, whether it's good or bad to have sex with a robot. Um, and I don't, I don't see much good from it. Um, but you, we could argue, you know, both ways. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a fascinating topic for sure. I'd like to break it down because again, um, you, your book is, is really touching on three things. So labor, war, and then sex and companionship. So let's, and also really clear, uh, to be clear, uh, a second ago, you said uh, it's the robot, it's the AI's rights you are considering in the sexuality component. Am I right about that? Yeah. So I think the focus, just to be clear, the focus of the rights in, in personhood movement is the protection of the human entity. Now, how we're going about it is a little bit different 
because of the way that the way the law works now and um, the law actually favors automation. It favors um, AI and incorporating that into more uh, businesses. And so my concern and others concern is that people are going to use this technology to take advantage of it, to use it for financial gain um, or not considering the philosophical implications of making this technology. And so we're talking about a very selective um, AI or social robot. Um, and we're not talking about all rights. We're talking about very strict legal rights that might protect humans via those rights. And so, um, and that's kind of what I get into in the book is that we're talking about legal personhood. We're not talking about moral personhood, which is what you and I share as humans. Um, so it, it's not, hey, let's just grant them humanness or let's just give them all rights habeas corpus but that individually we select certain ones that for certain reasons need to have a select form of personhood or select form of legal rights so that more harm is not caused or potential harm can be um, arbitrated and, and different things like that so it's a fascinating subject. I mean, I, I gotta admit, reading this, I was like, my God, this actually creates more questions in my brain. This would be a great class in like a postmodern college class. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love that. <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, you know, and, and AI in general, I mean, if you want, if you follow Boston Dynamics at all, those, mm -hmm. those, those little dudes are getting more and more scary as you go. And then, then you know, they're using police dog robots that there's a whole ethical ramification behind all that but let's let's start first with labor mm -hmm. because you do break it down i think it will just be easier to do it this way so what is your uh, argument there yeah uh and so there's there's an argument that we shouldn't fear the automation of work because the automation of work is going to lead to a utopia right and um there was a movie bliss that came out on amazon where uh, people basically have to recreate the old world so people can experience bliss because the modern world is, you know, everybody has a fixed income, they make tons of money, it's all comfort, et cetera. And so there's, there's people who are arguing that that's the reality we're heading towards. And um, if you look at the future of work, different books, um, let's see, Automation and Utopia, the future of work. Um, there's other ones that, that talk about this is where it's headed. Okay. So economists, philosophers believe that's where we're headed and they believe that's a good thing because then we'll be able to pursue more leisure and we'll be able to pursue our uh, ultimate desires and we won't be constrained by a nine to five or whatever. Um, and I argue that it actually might be a dehumanizing thing because <clears throat> surely not all people are going to benefit the way that some people are going to benefit, right? And so I, th I think it's going to be a utopia for some people, you know? So we think about the disabled, we think about um, those with, uh, with lower IQs, we think about those with um, a preference for actual physical labor and, and people that don't want to be a manager, that don't want to, to work in an office. And you say, well, now you can't do those jobs anymore the robot is going to do it or you're, you're going to have to maintain the robot, et cetera. I think that's in a lot of ways dehumanizing to us because 
in a lot of ways, we get purpose and identity from our work, do we not? And mm -hmm. so I think even in light of COVID in the last year where people were not allowed to, to go to work, um, even though they may have made more money technically through unemployment and other means, although that's and some of those are unethical, but um, different subject. I, I think in the heart of hearts of most people, they long to go back to work because that's that creates a pattern for us. And we love patterns. We love, you know, Perfect. systems. Purpose yeah, is that's, important. Yeah. It is important. Um, and actually, if you study um, like identity crises and different things that we go through different points of life, there's a major one when people retire. And, you know, it's related to some illness as well. And so people kind of deteriorate after retiring and now they have more money, they have more time, they have all these things, but they're not as happy and fulfilled because, you know, well, what do I do all day? And so I see this all the time in my line of work and, you know, people are like, you know, I just, you know, they get divorces, they, you know, they go crazy, whatever it is. And um, you're like, what happened? And it seems to be... <laughs> The, the causing effect is that they, their patterns were so messed up because of, of retirement and maybe, I don't know, but there's different things to it. But I think that's an issue that we're, we're not thinking about that maybe more leisure isn't the answer to our, um, our problems and, and more money doesn't solve our issues as humans and our, our creative nature to, to make, uh, to explore, to, uh, to be a part of a movement and all those things are really important to us. And so, yeah, it's going to benefit some people for sure. What about uh, use of robotics for, to replace things like, you know, children working in sweatshops, things like that. Yeah. I mean, certainly it's mm -hmm. got its greater good as well. Yeah. And so there's, there's different kind of facets to this. There's the automation of work in the U S and well, even in those cases, what if that's their, their primary means of, you know, income? And right. It's a, it's a screwed up, it's a screwed it up is. conundrum. Yeah, it is. And so yeah. you're, you're, you're taking away their only source of income. So what, yeah. and I don't like that. I don't, I don't like that solution either. Um, and, and I think in the West, we should be more altruistic with our resources and, and help those yeah. people. Um, and so that's a different issue. Um, but so I think in some ways it can benefit us for sure. Uh, and so like in the healthcare system, I think there will be benefits to it for sure. Um, but I don't think the, the answer is replacing all humans. I don't think that's the answer. Um, and I don't think that's what automation will actually do. I think what it will actually do is repurpose us. And so it's the repurposing that I'm mostly concerned about. So, yeah, am I concerned about full-scale automation, which I think a lot of companies are pushing for? Um, but because the reality of robotics is they, you know, if you have an assembly line of robots and they mess up one piece, you know, human a human can come in and just tweak that one piece or remove it. Well, an automation line of robots, they're just going to take it through the whole process. <laughs> so it's going to be, uh, and this is what Elon Musk figured out when he tried to full-scale automate an entire warehouse. Uh, it, there's a lot of problems to it. And so what's going to happen is people are going to work less and people might work only a couple hours a week. And so I have an issue with that as well. You know, what do they do with the rest of their time? Are we going to- Idle hands? Is that yeah. the idle hands is the devil's playground, right? <laughs> well, it's not necessarily that, you know, what if they like their job? 
What if they, yeah. they had fulfillment in that job or, you know, right. people who are a nurse are nurse or whatever. And the, the, the industrial prison complex is a perfect example of this. When you teach people within the prison systems, a job, a, you know, a career goaling job, whether it's mechanics or carpentry or, or, or something to that end, or when we educate them, when they are given a purpose, when they are finally told that they are worth knowing things mm -hmm. it changes everything recidivism rates go all the way down you know it's it's mm -hmm. a huge deal to give a human being a job a sense of purpose and some knowledge right and you know we, i talk to my wife all the time about you know the stepford movement and how terrible uh that was and you know some of our grandparents are kind of still in that ideology where the husband doesn't help with um you know chores or you know that's a woman's job it's like how how dehumanizing is that that my only purpose in life is to you know fulfill your needs and you know just to like that's so terrible as a as a thought but that's how people thought you know and so is, are we going back to that in some ways like you know you just show up to maintain this robot and then you go home and do whatever you need to do but your your one job is to to service this machine and that and then machine. that's interesting with hierarchy too does mm -hmm. that mean that the machine is somehow better than you if you're servicing it that's an interesting yeah i think it thought. does you're you're now working for the machine or you know and there's all types of stuff that's so fast-paced and, and so quickly like changing the nature of work and i mean amazon is just a great I mean, it's terrible, but it's a great experiment because we're seeing how people are being hurt by these robots. Uh, they're psychologically pressed by the automation of their work and how they have these high quotas and everything. They're like there's clocks everywhere if you go inside the factories and stuff. And there's just like this push for uh, efficiency and, and all these things are like, just, that has to be a, a stressful psychological oh, environment that horrible. if you don't, you don't meet these quotas, you know, if you don't work like a machine, um, you know, you're going to be replacing. That's and why so, they're peeing in Gatorade jars. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and defecating in bags because they don't have time to stop. Yeah. That's terrible. This is bizarre. It's so bizarre and crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So going from the idea that automation, from your perspective, it sounds like you are you're basically throwing up giant red flags saying this, this is a big uh, warning bell. You, you know, what, what could become of humans given an AI's capacity to run everything? Where does that leave us? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Is that, that, I mean, is that a sum mm -hmm. up pretty much of the yeah. labor part? It is. Um, and, you know, I think too, I think it's, it's a red flag, but also time, for pause because we haven't quite hit those marks yet where we're ready to full scale automate uh, or leave it to an AI to make those decisions, although they are in some capacities. Yeah. How is an AI supposed to determine, you were going to say credit and I cut you off, right? Mm -hmm. Credit score. Mm -hmm. Yep. All the, all the algorithms that determine everything yeah. about our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we live in a credit based society. So you have no credit, you have no resources so to speak and um and then also another you know face of the coin is that you're now putting 
AI and robotics as a new measure of what it means to be a worker and what a good worker looks like. So that that's what we're saying. This is what we want in our workers. So you need to be like a machine. And I think that metaphor is very harmful to us um, because we're, we're not machines. We're mm -hmm. soft tissue and slow processors and all this stuff. And, and I think that's by design, how we were created if, you know, and so, and this is an argument against some, you know, people argue against Christianity that, well, if there was a God, he would have made us different, but I don't know. I think how we, how we are designed has worked pretty well to this point. Um, and so if we have been on this earth for a long time, you know, what does it say about us that we can continually multiply in the hardest circumstances that we our DNA and our code lives on mm -hmm. the, the human race progresses, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and so why are we so concerned with altering the code and, and changing everything? Because we think that the machine is the ultimate um, specimen of a worker or a being. And so I think I find that quite troubling. Well, let's dig into that a little bit too. So if man is made in God's image and God, uh, who is an omnipotent being, uh, decided that these creatures, humans would roam the earth and then one day invent AI, didn't God know all along that AI was coming? And also if AI is made in man's image and man is made in God's image, isn't that sort of a full circle moment that in fact, mm -hmm. uh, AI is made in God's image? Just yeah. by de facto. Yeah. Um, I, I think technology in a lot of ways is a reflection. Of, it can be, uh, put it that way. It can be a reflection of, of God. It can be good. It can be generous. It can be uh, life-giving. Um, and so we believe God is a God of healing. Um, so we believe in science. We believe in medicine, all those things, right? Those are, those are important things. Those are, we believe that is, kind of stemming from the Omago Dei, like the image of God, right? It's not talking about characteristics, you know, Jesus, we don't know. We know Jesus wasn't white, but we don't know anything else about him. You know, he didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes and all that stuff. Um, but we do know a lot about his character. He was loving, charitable, um, all that stuff. And so when AI and robotics function in that way, then yeah, they are reflecting the image of God. Uh, via the image of man. Um, and I, you know, I play with the idea, like, could a, could a robot worship God? Could, um, mm -hmm. will there eventually be a being in my church who has, you know, full scale replaced a lot of the workers here in the factories that comes to church and ask me about God? You know, I think that's a possibility. Sure. Um, I don't have any reason not to believe that. I believe all kinds of interesting and miraculous things. So to me, it's, it's not consistent to say, well, that's not possible or, you know, that's unbelievable. Well, it's like, well, you know, you believe, you know, Jesus changed water into wine. You believe he walked on water and um, defied physics and all these things. So um, who am I to say that it's not possible? Um, so, yeah. Um, I, I think technology can be a, mm -hmm bearer of God's image, but 
um, we have to be very careful that we don't make it a Messiah or what the Bible calls an idol. An idol, but, yeah. Yeah. And so um, <clears throat> I think there's a lot of, a lot more analogies to the idol metaphor than to, uh, or it reflecting God, because, you know, we, we make these machines to generate uh, revenue. We make them to replace us so that we can do these things. But, you know, in a lot of ways, God gave us the, the authority to, to control. And um, as Genesis talks about subdue and cultivate the earth, you know, could technology be part of that cultivation? Yeah. But I think kind of giving it over to a robot, like full scale, I'm just, I'm going to let you go to work for me and all this stuff so that I can go home and, you know, just enjoy leisure all the time. I think there's something wrong with that. And because like I said, our purpose is to cultivate the earth and subdue it and also rest and enjoy things. And uh, yeah. So, but if, has, if a yeah. robot, if an AI was in the garden of Eden, it would have obeyed the laws of God, you know? So technically if humans have original sin by very nature of being <laughs> born and AI is without sin by nature of never being born, one could argue that AI is closer to God than humans, which really makes your brain explode. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of what interests me in the, the section about robotic souls. And, um, and so that's, that's a question I played with a lot um, in my study. And, and I really wanted at the beginning of my research to say that there's no reason why a robot and a human can't be synonymous. And I know I think I proved myself wrong um, through looking at the idea of a soul, which a lot of people don't believe in anymore, but um, I still think there's philosophical reasons to believe in it. Um, <clears throat> just dealing with identity and, and properties and substances and all those things. So anyway, um, yeah, I, I think my issue with that would be, I don't think robots at this point can have a soul unless God gives it the soul. And then all the issues that we're talking about are moot because now it is its own being and it's right. endowed with its own rights and all that stuff. Um, and so can a soul I, be programmed since none of us really know what a soul is for those of us that do believe in a soul, I being one of them that, and nobody's ever been able to say where the soul resides. Is it somewhere in the brain? Who knows? Cause brain yeah. death, people have experienced soul, outside mm -hmm. of their corpus and then come back into body with after brain death and all that so does that argue then that the soul is not even of the the shell that is the human in general and in that case like you said what if god decides that hey you know what these ais are interesting let's give them a soul or maybe a soul just is this something that becomes as an ai learns and develops and and understands itself and its world outside of itself, which is much how a baby comes mm -hmm. into existence, that maybe the soul develops naturally and maybe it's an algorithm. Maybe we're all in a matrix and you and yeah. I are a computer program <laughs> writing to learn mm -hmm. itself. Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't think that is the most probable outcome, but uh, I'm open to it for sure. And um, like I said, I don't, 
it, it's hard because a soul is a simple organism. And so this is going back to the philosophical side of it, trying to figure this out. And um, I, I don't think that it's like, you know, people, especially robotic futurists and, and that type of thinking is that you can just take my mind, download it and to the mm -hmm. cloud and then re, you know, put it into a new processor. I think the problem with that, and most of these people will say they don't believe in a soul. Well, what you're really saying is you don't believe in disembodiment, which you have to have in order to upload and download from a cloud, right? You have to have some type of point of transformation where you're, you're in one shell and you're going to another. Um, and so they kind of contradict themselves a little bit when they say they don't believe in a soul. They don't believe in disembodiment but I believe I can upload my consciousness to this new shell. Um, and so I think they're going to have a lot of problems when they actually try to do that. Um, and it's not going to work out because no one really understands what the, excuse me, the soul is in its essence. Um, now we kind of understand the function of it, what it, what it does. And like you said, driving personality and, and giving all the different pieces, how they, they come together. Uh, just to put it plainly, and uh, Aquinas is kind of where I go, and and I think Descartes really confused people because he just used certain words to talk about animate objects and, and animals and all the other stuff. But um, I, I think he probably had a lot in common with Aquinas. I think we Descartes gets a lot of bad rap, but I think he got a lot right. Um, <clears throat> just kind of the the purpose and disembodiment aspect i think he should have read aquinas a little bit more but anyway um yeah i don't i don't know um like i said maybe one day that'll be a reality for us and we'll i'll definitely be here like yeah this is what i was talking about and you know they definitely should be warranted as as persons and uh, and hopefully we'll do that before that happens. And at least if nothing else, it's caused us to rethink um, or to rethink about how we, we look at like the fetus and, and those type of, of beings and even, even uh, animals that are very intellectually developed and how we treat them as well. And so I think all that kind of reflects on us, right? So whether or not, we ever have artificial general intelligence, whether or not we ever have these type of robots that we're talking about today, you know, really that doesn't matter so much. What matters is that we examine our perspective about how we treat entities um, in the present and that we're open to, to redefining those, those concepts and those boundaries um, because we've, we've learned from the past, you know, how we've treated women was not right how we treated um, people who had different pigment color in their skin was not right. Um, and that's all kind of been based around property rights, right? So economic greed is kind of one of these major barriers for people to be treated with equal um, respect and value. And so here we are again, talking about who should be the recipient of these legal rights. And so to me, it's, it's so obvious like thinking about that if we look at these different analogies through women's rights animal rights and all these things and not to say that they're you know an animal is equal no, to I get you. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
don't want to have any confusion there. Um, but that, get some letters on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but that it should cause us to pause. Like we haven't always got this right. And in fact, more often than not, we've gotten it wrong. Right. And so, you know, what if this isn't actually, you know, it has reason, it has the ability to feel pain and all these other things, which really, if you think about suffering, there's really not a good definition of what it is. Right. And so, you know, suffering could be, I didn't get the love and attention I should have had growing up or suffering could be physical suffering. It could be psychological suffering. Um, So we don't even really understand what that is, or we don't understand what the soul is. We don't understand what the mind is um, and in totality, but then we're, we're over here saying that we believe that we shouldn't give rights to something we don't fully understand Mm -hmm. how it's going to make decisions. We don't really understand what it is in its essence and because we don't have a frame of reference for it, we just ignore it. And I don't think any good is ever going to come from that. And so I'm trying to like, you know, wave the flag and say, hey, you know, maybe we should cause for pause, look at this again and, and think about, you know, should fetuses be regarded as, you know, a person? Should certain animals be regarded? Should we know whatever it is? Um, have we always been right? No. <laughs> We, yeah. we, we get this right? Probably not. Um, well, then what happens in times of war when, you know, people who've had nearly, you know, all their limbs blown off, let's say, and rely on robotics to become a fully operational person again. And then let's say 60% of them is actually a machine at that point. Yeah. Then I'm are t- they a human or are they a machine? That's interesting. Yeah. Well, that that's a very platonic, right? That's uh, what, yeah. is the es- what is the essence of a cup? You know, when is it, when does it lose its cupness, you know, yeah. 60%, 80%. Um, and so, you know, even if they're like just a, a head, right. Or they're a head and the rest of their body is a machine. I still think they're human. No, we're definitely cyborgs. I don't believe that any person living today is less than a cyborg because all the technology that, him. yeah, we, we integrate into our lives. Um, yeah. We take medicine to alter our body. Uh, and I don't we have know pacemakers. Any- we have yeah. computers in our hands that operate us. We mm-hmm. run our entire lives. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, like, I'm not anti that. Like, that's not what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, but, okay, so this is a, a distinction I make sometimes. Like, so is it wrong for somebody to take steroids? All right. No, it's not wrong if you need it to kind of get back to, um your quality of life. So, right. We take them for, you know, different sicknesses or whatever, like they have a good use, but you know, everybody doesn't always use what it's intended for. And somebody you're going to take, somebody might take anabolic steroids to uh, increase their testosterone because they want bigger biceps or whatever. Is that wrong? Yeah. I think that's wrong because you're not using the technology to uh, benefit your life. You're using it to enhance your life. Um, And so that's kind of where I draw the boundary is, Mm -hmm. you know, most of this is like, we don't need to work on things that are going to extend our cognition into some type of immorality. There's no point to work on that, in my opinion, because there are other issues we need to be working on. You know, we, we haven't solved world hunger. You know, we have uh, climate change that we're not addressing and different things. So why are we giving so many resources towards this? And it's not just in robotics and AI, you know, most of 
science, grants based in science are working towards male pattern baldness. And I had a scientist tell me that. Um, who and erectile dysfunction, yeah. Yeah. too. Erectile like, dysfunction is a big one. That that's where the money is. And so that's where the research mm-hmm. goes. And, and these, these scientists are not bad people. They're not um, unethical or anything. They're just, they're, they're trying to find a job. They're trying to feed their children, whatever it is. Um, and so they're, they have to gravitate toward the grants are. And mm-hmm. so they don't want to work on that. I don't, I don't know anybody that says I want to be a scientist to work on ED medication or male pattern baldness or whatever it is. But that's where the money is. And so likewise with robotics and AI, because so much of it is fueled by the war machine, you know, it's fueled by um, the Department of Defense and all these other things that are fully intertwined with its history and, and makeup. Why? So we can surveil, so we can assess targets, so we can have we more can precision. We can kill without feeling something. I mean, that's the, yeah. that's a big thing. The drones... And you talk about this in the book about how when we send drones in to to bomb, you know, and kill all these people, there's a dissociation of humanity mm-hmm. because this robot is doing the job for us. So what does that lead to on a moral level? Surely it protects our troops from being endangered. Um, and you spoke of that earlier with the with the robot that you worked with that was a protector of sorts. And, you know, what does that mean in the future? And you said, you know, does that mean more wars because we have completely disassociated from what it means if we deploy AI to fight our battles for us? It's it's a great ethical question. Yeah, I think it does. I think it it leads to to more, more conflict and not just because of the disassociation, but because of, um, you know, it's, it's based on irrational fear, right? The suspicion of fear is what it's called. And so if you go back to the argumentation here with why we develop these systems, it's basically what children argue. You know, I, I need this piece of technology because the kid across the street has it. And, you know, I, I need it so I can, because he has it is basically what the argument is. And so, you know, fear, suspicion of fear is like, if you give two people, like two opposing rooms and you say, uh, I'm going to give you each a button. You don't know the other people in the other room. And the first person to push the button, you're going to get paid a hundred dollars. But if the other person pushes you first, you lose a hundred dollars. So basically if you just sit there and trust that the other person is not going to attack you, right? You both win. But more often than not, if you put people in that situation, what they're afraid and so they might, they're going to try to push the button first, supposedly. And um, I think that was actually on um, the Batman movie, The Dark Knight Rises, um, where the Joker puts two different, uh, he puts inmates on one boat and civilians on the other, and he gives them a, a bomb. Like, you know, basically you have to have this time to press a button. That's where that comes from. And, and I think that's really built and ingrained into our security and defense system logic is that, we have to develop this stuff because it's going to protect us, but that's actually propagating more development of war tech. And it's actually propagating more conflict down the road. Um, and, and I think the war machine speaks for itself, especially in the U S that we are infatuated with it, addicted to it, um, just economically dependent on it. And 
it must be because it is. It's just kind of continually propagating itself. Yeah, and there's a nuance to it. I think robotics in um, uh, military mirrors robotics and policing, right? There's a there's a nuance. If you're pulling someone over and you're a robot, an AI, you will not understand the nuance of the situation. There, what if a woman stole a loaf of bread to feed her children mm-hmm. to a to a robot that's just somebody that stole something? You know, that, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Is there's like mm-hmm. levels to yeah. To the morality, there's levels to <laughs> to ethics. There's levels of understanding of of what you're perceiving or not perceiving. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point, and we have to we have to ask that question because how is the system going to to make those decisions? And we don't know, and that's kind of the nature of unsupervised learning. Is we gave it an input, it gave us an output. We don't understand how it made that decision. Um, and so this is where personhood comes into play, legal personhood, is that it kind of gives us another piece of leverage for arbitration and for negligence as we, we're not really sure who's at fault. Is it the operator? Is it the system? Um, we don't know. And, and so most likely what happens in that case is both are liable, right? And so, um, and that's kind of it, getting in. Meaning like if you program a robot to kill and it kills who serves time in prison, is that what yes. you're trying? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Or if yeah. it makes a mistake and um, which just happened, right? And we, we yeah. as humans, trust that the machine is going to, because it's smarter than us, is going to make the best decision. So we trust it. But when it makes a mistake, which just happened in 2006 and it kills a friendly, you know, who's to blame? Well, Explain it made, what it is because people won't know what that means. A friendly. That's uh, oh yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So a friendly force, somebody that's on our side, um, it's called friendly fire. Like when you mistakenly identify someone as an enemy and harm them or kill them, then you're now responsible for that action. And that happens in the heat of the moment. Um, It's happened multiple times Uh, in the U.S. conflicts. And um, it actually happened in 2006 where a system identified a friendly uh, aircraft as an enemy aircraft and released a missile and killed the the pilots on board. Um, and there were human operators behind it and they just trusted that it made the right decision and they didn't stop it. Um, and there's been other conflicts where uh, a system identified something as a nuke. And if the person in charge would have said, okay, the system's right, we might've been in a nuclear situation, but it wasn't, it had made a mistake. And so that's a very terrifying scenario. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. if you grant it personhood, if an AI is granted personhood, meaning it, it is absolving the human programmer from error, then it's sort of like we've given corporations and in, in their, they have personhood now. Corporations exist in personhood land, mm-hmm. which is yeah. so bizarre. Yeah, well, it allows uh, them to to absolve themselves of a lot of wrongdoing. They get away with mm. so much more. Well, it it can be a shield, but it also can be a point of arbitration as well. Um, and so, there's there's a lot of need for reform in this system. And legal scholars will tell you that there's there's need for reform because we haven't thought about this and 
the way that the law was designed in law theory, um, it just wasn't built to incorporate every piece of technology that was going to come out. And so we're again at an impasse if we don't think differently about this. So we're, we're not at any, anybody in, in my camp, we don't want to absolve the corporation from blame. And I think it's going to be a both and type thing. So it, the corporation would be liable, but also the entity would be liable. Um, and maybe that could be a point of psychological treatment to see the say a robot um, kills your spouse or harms your spouse. And this might be kind of morbid, but what if it was, you know, you were able to put it down and as punishment, you know, not, not to like harm it or beat it or anything, but that, you know, this robot was decommissioned because of what encourages <coughs> your spouse and um, part of its property or whatever funds that it was given yeah. will be now allocated to you. Um, and so that, I mean, that is a very simplistic, you know, scenario, but um, our hope is that people would not be taken advantage of otherwise they will, because like I said, tax law, actually favors automation because we don't look at human work and automated work as the same, at least legally speaking now. And so, you know, the corporation can just write off all types of benefits for, for automating work and using an AI, even though it may be causing so much harm, it may be, you know, it may randomly select to fire somebody or not hire somebody based on race or whatever um, the algorithm decides. And so, you know, that is causing harm, but the corporation is completely scot-free, yeah. you know? Yeah. So there, there's definitely two edges to the sword here, right? There's, there's, it can cut both ways. Um, but the major, I think the solution is not to just say the current law, legal system can handle it. I think the a solution is we need to look again at how we, we do this. And I think there needs to be a whole new set of, um, rights and um, how we deal with property and, and legal causation and all these things and how we deal with blame, uh, negligence and all this stuff, liability and um, all these technical legal terms and, and to get people from different worldviews, different um, branches of ethics, different scholars to come together and think, how could we, how could we make a system where where we introduce these robots and systems that are going to protect people first, right? We want to protect humans, their, their flourishing and well-being, but also um, to propagate systems of virtue in our civilization that, you know, we're not just using machine as a slave. Um, you know, we don't, we don't want to just create a slave for no reason. That's just, that just to me seems, you know, that's not going to produce virtue. So why would we do that? Um, we don't just want to say economics on the only reasons we do things. So we're just going to continue to innovate because it's going to make money. That's, that's not going to end well for us. I think, you know, we don't want to just make them as killing machines. We don't want to just make them as sexual companions, all this stuff, but sure there, there are benefits to some of those creations and some of those creatures, but we also need to understand that we're liable to them as our creatures made in our image. We, we need to understand. And I think Mary Shelley captures this well. Frankenstein, yeah. Mm -hmm, is that yeah. you don't just 
create something and then throw it away because you're disgusted by it, right? It wasn't mm-hmm. what you thought it would be, right? And that story is very sad about the creature living in this shack and watching this family. Um, and like, is that what we're we're doing? We're just going to create these children or whatever they are. And when we don't like them or it doesn't turn out the way we want, we're just going to cast it aside. We um, become more like uh, mythological gods, like the gods of the pantheon. Where, mm-hmm. where for them, humans were more like playthings, chess pieces. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if we become the gods of the AI, then that is certainly an issue. Yeah. There's a Black Mirror episode that, uh, that, well, many of the Black Mirror episodes cover that, as does Westworld. Yeah, they do. And, Mary and Shelley's Hopper. Frankenstein was one of the most beautiful books I've ever read, to be honest. And mm. the tragedy of the monster, of the creature you know, feeling abandoned. And it's interesting because again, it reflects back to you had a childhood where there was abandonment stuff and that, that you have, you know, your work uh, separate from being an evangelical pastor, but your work with this, with this writing is really diving into what it means. What does it mean to create this thing and then either turn your back on what it could become Mm -hmm. or, or let it overtake who you are. Yeah. That's, that has a lot to do with why I wrote it and why I resonated with the the project and, and why I still want to, to research this question of, you know, our life with the robots and, um, and hopefully it can have a positive outcome. Yeah. Let's talk about sex robots and companion yeah. robots. Um, you bring up some very interesting points. You know, if a, if an AI is created as a sexual partner, you know, what does that mean for consent? And does that mean, what about people who go through life unloved and untouched? And, you know, I have a friend who's a sex worker and one of the most profound things she ever said to me was, I love the unlovable and I touch the untouchable, mm. you know? And, and that was, that was really quite a moment for me to, to understand that, yeah, everybody deserves that. So where does that figure in with something that can't say no? Or do we develop a thing that has dominion over its its sexual mm. autonomy to say like, oh, I'm not in the mood right now. What does it mean for child predators? If we provide them with quote unquote child robots, is that only feeding into their, their issues? And then what mm. happens if they escalate? What happens if people have AI robots and then grow bored of that and then are so used to that passive sexual entity that then rape is the next step. And of course, these are all what ifs and, and who knows, but they're, it's a mm-hmm. fascinating thought experiment to, to go down yeah. these different routes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was uh, definitely the, the darker part of the research for sure. And, um, you know, I, I'm working from a particular worldview about sexuality. And, um, and so, the biggest concern that I found in some of this research was um, the advocation for childlike sex robots. And, um, you know, there's a whole different spectrum of things that you will see in the book, but I think the biggest concern is that it doesn't, it doesn't promote a virtuous life, uh, you know? And so one of the things about sexuality mm-hmm. um from a biblical perspective is that it needs, you need to understand how to 
deny the self and deny certain desires that you have, it doesn't address why you have those desires, right? And so I don't ever want to tell somebody, I don't believe that those desires are natural to you because I think that they actually might be and they are, you know, and you may be attracted to a man or you may be a woman attracted to a woman or you may be a man attracted to a child. Uh, I take that seriously. And and I think those are real feelings that you have, but the question is not, what do you feel? The question is, what do you do with those feelings? And that's what I'm most concerned about. Um, And so, like I said, at the beginning, my, my issue is not to condemn any person for their feelings, but I think there are good actions and bad actions. Um, So just to kind of narrow down to the, what the, the book talks about is, you know, we, I have a problem with creating something for the sole purpose of being raped. I, I don't, I don't know what, what virtue that develops in a person. And now there are people, like you said, who um, they prefer that they prefer the silicon doll, or they may prefer a, a robot that, um, is detached in some ways. Um, or they may not have a choice because this is the only way that they can experience intimacy. Yeah. And so I think as a caveat to that, and I tell some people this, like you're, you're not less of a person if you, even if you never experienced sex. And I think that's something so foreign to us is that sex is a natural right. And I don't believe that it is. So, I think it's a great thing. I think it's an enjoyable thing, but I don't see sexuality as my right to impose upon my wife or that she had, that has to happen, you know, or vice versa. And so um, I I don't think that's particularly the best way to look at it as it's, it's a natural right, which I think a lot of the argumentation for this stuff is, is based upon the premise that sexuality is a right I have so the disabled have a right to sex, so we should, you know, buy them escorts and different things. Or someone with sexual deviance has a right to have that need met, and I'm I don't buy that. Um, See, I don't think if consent. I, I'm always for consent, and so, and I would not because you kind of went in a linear pattern as like LGBTQ and then to uh, pedophilia, which I don't think the two are at all connected. But in no. my personal worldview, and I have a feeling you don't think that either. It just no. was sort of the linear pattern by which you spoke. But I want to make that clear because I don't want people to think that you somehow lumped those together. Um, but yeah, consent is everything. And a child and an animal mm-hmm. and somebody who maybe is not with a mental acuity or capacity, uh, somebody in a coma, you know, all these different things, uh, they <laughs> deserve to not have anything happen to them in a sexual and or violent nature of any kind. Not that anyone does, but that's a specific. Nobody, if somebody isn't able to consent, all bets are off, baby. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, And so my concern with this and likewise with, and I I know there are people who make their living through sexuality and I understand that. Um, And so I I don't know what the solution is for them. And honestly, some of that is just none of my business. Um, I don't want to know about people's sexual life. That's, that's your business. Um, But the Bible does talk about sex and it is a part of, of life Uh, and an important part, I would think for a lot of people and um, something that kind of drives us in a lot of ways. Um, St. Augustine said that the world marches to the beat of three drums 
power, sex, and money. Um, so yeah, I, I understand that, but I don't think some of these things are a necessary creation to address the need. Um, and so, and there's just so many, there's so many areas for people to kind of speak into pedophilia and they don't. And I think especially Christians, it baffles me that there's not more research on this. Um, and there's only two places in the world that I know of that are actually trying to address the issue of childlike attraction. And so, for example, you can't self-identify as uh, attracted to children without some legal ramification that you are now put on a predator list. Mm -hmm. So how are these, how are these men or women ever supposed to have some type of help for what is considered a legal deviance? They can't, there's nothing for them. And so part of the argumentation for a childlike sex robot is that it would provide a non, you know, hurtful avenue for that behavior. Um, and my argument would be, it would actually propagate that behavior. Yeah, I have a feeling. It, yeah, I kind of tend to agree with you, as we know, because of how porn escalates for many people that yeah. it triggers parts of the brain that eventually will grow deadened and tired and need something even more exhilarating. So it would, the logical next step would have to be a human. Yeah. And and I think too, with, with these robots, it, it, it'll trick the brain probably once or twice, but it won't be um, as satisfying in progression. Like it, it yeah, that, that's my assumption. I don't know. There might be people out there who say they have a extremely gratifying uh, relationship. Well, people with marry the, their sex dolls, yeah. right? So out yeah. there, people marry their cars. There's all sorts of quirks. We're not talking about the outliers though. We're talking about yeah. in general, the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And unless an AI is, is, is created that will eventually pass the Turing test that can have this sort of autonomy and move throughout the world undetected as an AI, it has no way to say, nope, this isn't good for me. Yeah. But if it's not real, then does that matter? It's a confusing thing to think about. Well, I think it does matter. I think it matters because of how it, it's helping that person and how it might be harming that person. And, and furthermore, if you really think about how it's going to be in reality, what's going to happen is, um, so just like with in-app purchases and all those things, what's going to happen is people are going to design them where they have upgradable features. And so you may be in the heat of the moment, whatever, and oh, you know, pop-up ad or whatever, and you have to now you know, upgrade for $9 yeah. or whatever to get this next yeah. feature. Um, I think that'll probably be the reality. And I think that's also very harmful and deceitful on top of the actual uh, enterprise that is the whole, yeah. you know, so on top of that, you're already propagating greed. And then on top of that, you're um, unethical in how you are advertising and promoting your product. But you're so talking about how it hurts humans. I'm saying, is it, is it possible? Because this goes back to the whole conversation we've been having is what is AI? Does it have personhood? And if it doesn't, if you can argue that it doesn't have personhood because only humans made in God's image have personhood, then, then it isn't harming this AI, but we've created this thing that is so human-like 
that's where the distinction causes issue, but it doesn't cause issue with the AI. It doesn't care. You turn it off, it's off. You turn it on, it's on. It's the human that gets messed up or yeah. escalates or whatever. In, yeah, in so, theory, not always, yeah. but in theory, yeah. Okay, let's just, just to clarify, um, personhood and humanness are not synonymous in my understanding. So, like, I wouldn't say that, and I think we use that in normal language, like personhood means only for humans. And I don't think that's biblically true. I think a person is a character in a story. And so biblically speaking, it could be a donkey, could be an ax, could be the wind, whatever, uh, humans, animals, both. And so- Isn't that pers personification though? It is, but it doesn't give us a detailed definition of what a human is either. So I think there's a broad- understanding of what it means to be a person under that label. And so anthropomorphization of, of robots is a real thing. And I think that's by design. I think we're designed to see ourselves in other creations, um, other creatures. Uh, and likewise, personhood, yeah, it could be moral personhood. And so now we're going back to legal terminology. Um, and so that's kind of where this breaks down is we're talking about a legal idea. Um, and my whole point is that we say, no, it can't be a person because it can't be a human. But yes, it can be a person, but it can't be a human. Yeah, I mean, it can be a person, uh, just like a bridge, a dog, uh, an elephant, a statue. It can be legally a person. It is a real possibility in time, space, and matter today. <laughs> it's, it exists. And so you're trying to break that illusion in in modern thinking because we use person and human so synonymously today that you like, we just use it as a, a substitute word, I think, without really thinking about what it means. And if you go back to the root word, it means a character, right? It means somebody who puts on a mask in a play that is the root of the word. And so right. Persona, if, yeah. if, if we're using it that way, then it makes sense to me logically that, robots, trees, whatever, they can be persons and they can be a very real person to us. And that's why I take it seriously that people might have a relationship with this robot or they might and have been, you know, emotionally manipulated, emotionally distraught, seeing how a robot has been harmed. So mm -hmm. it's a real thing um, that yeah. we need to take seriously, but it, you know, legal personhood from a legal perspective is about the protection of the entity. So it's a both end of what you're saying. Um, and what I'm saying, it could be either way. So we could look at it um, as, okay, there are those who want to protect the rights of the robot in its physical sense, which most people aren't arguing that. Um, or we could talk about it as in how it's going to harm the human user by that perception and even deception because it's made in its being to deceive us. That's, you know, that's what it is. And there's, there's humans behind AI. There's resources behind AI. It doesn't just pop up out of a void. It's, it's a real embodied thing. And likewise with these robots, what, you know, people talking about, they're going to replace sex workers. No, they're not. What's going to happen is there's going to be a sex worker in the room with the other sex worker to make sure that the rules are followed 
You know what I'm saying? Like it may take away from human men or women having to perform those acts, but they're still going to have to sit in there <laughs> or in the next room and, and watch and observe. And so it's not really solving the problem. It's creating another issue. Um, so why, why make it is my question. I think about the Asimov laws, right? The first, the robot mm-hmm. can do no harm. Mm-hmm. Right. And then it has to protect human sanctity of life, which right there in the first two, it's screwing up the whole war machine ro- robot. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the third, I think as to speak to it's sort of like fight club, if you know about fight club, you don't talk yeah. about fight club. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Oh, man, I, this work is really something. I, I hope you continue it because it's, it is quite fascinating. And I uh, have your parishioners read this book. Some, yeah. So yeah. I uh, I got to give a copy to uh, a widow. She's one of the older members of our church. She's in her 80s. And she said she wanted to read it. Um, and so I haven't seen her in over a year. Um, and so finally, you know, she got vaccinated and all that stuff. And uh, I was able to, to give her a copy the other day. And so that was a really sweet moment. And she actually... You know, she prayed for me every week as I was writing it. Um, and so it was a really nice moment to be able to deliver that to I her. That. Joshua, I, tell people how they can find you. you can find yeah, uh, yeah uh, it's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, there's all kinds of places. You can find it everywhere except Norway. For some reason, they will not bring it to Norway. So if you're... It's because they're all robots. but i had i had a lady a researcher in norway reach out and she wanted to read it and um i couldn't even send like buy an ebook and send it to her because um it was only available in english uh so Mm. yeah amazon's weird like that um i don't know what the issue is but anyway um so you can find it wherever books are sold robotic Robotic persons are future with social robots yeah you got it um, you can find me on Twitter, uh, JK Smith, 8806, my Twitter handle. I'm pretty active on there. Um, my website, joshuakaysmith.org. Not as active there, but I do check it. Um, and if you want to send me an email or whatever, um, you can buy the book there as well. Um, yeah, writing a second book now. That's kind of a more positive version of this book and, and talking about, um, healthcare and kind of the ethics of looking at robots as persons and um, some things to be concerned about. Um, so thankfully not writing about war anymore <laughs> um, or, or sexuality as much. So it's good and um, enjoying it. And I don't know when that'll come out, but um, yeah. Keep me just, posted Cause I can add it to the links page on HeyHumanPodcast.com when it does come out and I'll put all your information on there as well. So can people yeah. can do a one-stop shop there. Thank you so much, Susan. I appreciate it. Yeah. Dr. Joshua Smith, thank you for being on Hey Human. This has been a lively, interesting conversation. (laughs) I loved reading the book. I made a million notes and could probably talk about this subject until the great wee hours of the evening. I think it's endlessly fascinating and it will continue to be so. I mean, there's no end in sight to the the questions that, that are arising because of this topic. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. 
rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.